I want to uh, speak on a series. I want to do a series over the next coming while. I want to talk about gifts in the church. We did this several years ago, and um, I find that that um, the church is kind of like a family, right? Like the, your first children are young, and you teach them about head coverings and modesty and the Bible stories and everything. And then 10 years later, you have a bunch more children and you realize you didn't teach those things to the next class, the next group of children that are coming up. You got to circle back around and redo some of these things. So it's been several years since we've talked about gifts in the church. And um, I thought it'd be good to circle back around and visit that for us Uh Along with, along with the ideas towards examining gifts among us, I've really been thinking about how, how we can pull together as a body. A big part of that is recognizing what the parts are, who's who, and what is my place to fulfill, what's your place, where, where do we, how do we fit together. I want to start that. There's, you know, by way of introduction, there's three there's three lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And there are three very different lists. And so, um, so just by way of introduction, what I'd say, yeah, if you, can, if you can make that work, that'd be great. By way of introduction, those three lists, uh, and if we, if, if I'm, uh, committed enough, we'll go through all three of them, but I want to start with one. But those three gifts are Romans 12, um, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. And those three different lists of gifts are, are they're very different, like I said. In Romans 12, they're, they're, they're these very broad, I, I often refer to them as motivational gifts, like what people's internal motivations are. That's where I want to start with us today. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 are manifestation gifts. They're, they're things that the Holy Spirit does, like miracles and tongues and discerning of tongues and discerning of spirits. These kinds of gifts are in 1 Corinthians 12. And then Ephesians are ministry gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, shepherd. Um, it's okay. Uh, those are more like ministries within the church. So that's the way that I think of those three lists of gifts. And I want to start with the motivational gifts. Um, we're going to start in Romans 12. So you can turn there with me if you want. And um, I'm going to start where this chapter starts. And we'll look at the verses that precede this because I think it's a good introduction. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, <clears throat> I beseech you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I'm going to read through and then we'll go back and look at some stuff. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say... Through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. 
For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And then there's some, some instructions that maybe we'll look at later. <clears throat> so let's go back through, starting in verse 1. He says, he, he's beseeching, like he's begging, he's pleading with us, with this church in Rome. That they present their bodies a living sacrifice. And that's such a fascinating word choice to me, living sacrifice, because it's kind of counterintuitive because sacrifices are dead. Like you kill them. That's the point to the sacrifice terminology. Like you take the animal and you cut its throat and the blood pours out. That's the point to sacrifice or the oil or the wheat you pour it out or you give it to the temple or whatever the case may be. But the whole point to sacrifice is to lose it, to let go of it, to not have it for yourself anymore. And to use that terminology of sacrifice with living and self means you become that. And, and that's interesting to me because um, I almost think that sometimes we would rather have those older forms of sacrifice. Something like just imagine if you could placate God when something's going wrong or when you're worried about your favor with God, if you could just round something up from your house and go and kill it on an altar. You take your dog or cat and go, uh, that's blasphemous. We wouldn't do dogs or cats on the altar of Moses. But some animal from your household and, and go and make it as a sacrifice to God and say, okay, are we all right now? But that's not what's offered here. You have to be that. You have to lose self. Like you don't get a, you don't get a holy suicide. It's not a kamikaze mission to be a Christian. You don't get to end. You have to live in this place of sacrifice. You have to perpetuate this notion of giving up yourself. Baptism is an entrance into a life of sacrifice. And it's also interesting to me that he uses this term, it's a reasonable service. It's according to reason. It makes sense. And I think the importance of, of that terminology is that when I find myself not living a sacrifice to God, when I find my life not in line with his expectations, with consecrated, with consecration, with dedication and devotion to God, with wholeness towards God, there's something wrong with my thinking. I'm not evaluating things properly. I'm not being reasonable. Like when you have an argument with someone and you say, would you please just be reasonable? Would you, would you act in a reasonable way? Would you be rational? Would you think about this properly? That's what Paul's saying is think about this properly. Think about who you are in relation to God and what he's done and what he's asking you to do. And if you would consider those things, if we would consider those things before we act, 
we would put things in the proper place. We would understand, okay, here's what God has done in the creation. Here's what Christ has done for my salvation. And here's the little tiny piece of the world that I'm supposed to occupy, what I'm supposed to do in light of all that God and Christ have done for me. But we often don't take the time to do those things. We often don't stop and think for our actions. And that causes us to be out of reason. He goes on to use two other important terms, conformed and transformed. This notion of be not conformed to the world has always been a very graphic thing to me. I think of um, like minting, like you take a metal uh, and you stamp it. You create an image on it. You conform it to the, the image plate. You press down with enough force and it stamps that blank with the image that you want on it. And that's the world that we live in. The, the world is that image and pressure. And we're all living in a world that's pushing down on us, trying to create that indelible mark of the systems of the world around us. And this, I think, is, is a, a proper way to think about what um, worldliness is. Like, it, it gets way past the idea of doing a thing or, or, or owning something that's worldly or doing something that's worldly. Really, uh, let's, go, let's, let's just jump real quick. Uh, do I need to do that? James 4.4 4 is the passage that comes to mind in parallel with this. It says, um, no, you're not. The friendship of the world is empty with God. And this is a, like, it's a really important issue because that terminology, is re- that, that phrase is really strong, the enemy of God. What, what would I do that would make me God's enemy? Let, let's actually turn there real quick and look at it. Um, James chapter 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? Put a, put a finger there in your mind. Go back here. He says... Um, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, how does that work? For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. In both of these passages where it's taught, where it's making these links between worldly action, the direct antecedent, the thing that follows right after it, is some species of pride, of vaunting, of self. Self is at the heart. Like, I, here's the problem. If I say, you know, X, Y, and Z is worldly. If we don't do X, Y, and Z, then we're not worldly. Then, then I haven't really got to where that's coming from. What happens in both of these instances in the scriptures is that when worldliness is considered, when the enemy, what, what, I, what I do that makes me the enemy of God is considered, textually, 
the thing that follows after that thought is pride, is self. I'm at the center of the world. The, 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 what it means to be worldly is to engage and perpetuate the systems that make the world broken. This word world in, in many of its, in almost all of its applications is cosmo. It's just, it's just all the created stuff. Like the created stuff isn't the problem. What it means in euphemism, in spiritual vernacular is the things that are broken about the world that cause the world to keep going, that cause wars, that cause fighting, that cause envy, that cause strife, that cause division, that cause malice, that cause anger. That's what's at the bottom of all that, that's worldly. And that's what the world is pressing down on each of our lives day after day as we slog around, as we walk around through the city, on the subway, to work, at our houses, with our phones. Everything around us is pushing down, is trying to create that stamp of that thing, that spirit of the world that's in each of ourselves. Because what causes the world to be broken is this vaunting of self, me over you. I'm up here, you're down here. I want this, and I don't care what you get. And the inversion, the way the kingdom ought to be, is that I think of myself properly. I put myself in the property, proper category. This happens, this is true in marriage, it's true in church relationships, it's true with our neighbors, it's true everywhere. The inversion of the world, the kingdom, is I come under. Everything in the world is I go over. Everything in the kingdom is I come under. And in any position, in any time there's conflict, you can think, am I trying to be over or am I trying to be under? It's insidious. As a Christian man, this is the challenge of my life. How to continually evaluate myself, am I trying to be over or under? So like I have a problem with one of my little children and they're being loud and I, I have stuff to do. Am I trying to just get over that and crush it? Am I trying to stop it? Or am I trying to come under and, and, and create something new? That's, that's every situation in my life is one of those kinds of constructs. And when you learn to see it, like you have to exercise yourself, you have to practice and learn to see these things. Learn to understand and evaluate your own heart, your own position, your own motivations, because they're secret and they're subtle and they're dark and they're hidden and they're obtuse. They're hard to see. But when you practice, you can catch yourself and you can say, I'm, I'm trying to get over this. I'm trying to be on top. I'm trying to elevate. I'm trying to make me the most important thing in this scenario. And wherever that is, that's, that's worldly. That's the enemy of God. Because everything we know about Christ is the opposite, right? Where did he ever vaunt himself? Where did he ever lift himself up? Where did he ever put himself over others? Where did he ever engage in a conflict so that he could be the better over, over his neighbor, his peer, his family, his disciples? Nowhere. Those things... That system, that system of being over, it's antichrist, it's satanic, it's everything that's broken in the world. It's the fall. It's my 
engagement with the fall. It's my recasting the fall in my own life. Go back to Romans 12 here. So that's, that's being conformed. But being transformed, and that's something else. Transformed is like changed. It's not, it's not molded. It's not formed. It's changed. It's, it's from one thing to another thing. So what he's telling us is, is this is where we start, right? We start in this system, and we want to transform. We want to be turned into Christ. We want to learn, and, and by grace, we want to find the path to be different than what I am naturally. By the renewing of your mind. It means that m- m- my mind has to change. I, I, you know, if, if I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, there has to be room for me to evaluate and say something needs to change. I think that a lot of our, our, our mental and psychological faculties are designed to give us room to do what we're doing justification, like all these kinds of things that we do, um, comparisons, like the way that we live our lives, uh, our, our minds are made to, to give us space to do those things. And I don't know how it would be otherwise. I don't know how we'd live if it wasn't for some of that. Like you just have to get up and go at a certain point and, and our minds are made to do that. But, but, but our times in prayer, our times of the church, our times in the scriptures, they're made to be these stop that. Pause. Put, put put that that thing that keeps you going. Put it on pause and say, "What needs to change? What what do I need to evaluate? Where's there room to grow? What's not like Christ in me? What's not working in my life? Don't just keep rushing on past it and go 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 and keep moving forward. That's a that, that we have to if we're going to transform." by the renewing of our minds, we have to make space for that change. We have to make space for potential. We have to make space for considering, like stop for a moment and think when that conflict happened, when that situation happened, when that last week happened, when yesterday happened, when whatever happened, what, what was I doing? What, where was that coming from? Why was I responding that way? What was that about? What's at the bottom of that? I, I think that some people are, are better at doing that. Some people are more prone to it, maybe have more of a disposition for that kind of analysis. But I think it's why we're supposed to stop and pray. It's why we're supposed to fast. It's why we're supposed to watch sometimes. It's why we're supposed to be um, in these quiet spaces with God to give space for that kind of reflection about my life. And it doesn't have to be like a punctuated, like it doesn't have to be like, it 
it's it's not it's not necessarily a crisis moment. Sometimes it is, but like it's not a epiphany. It's not a revelation. It's just the constant reflection, like day by day to stop and think, day by day to stop and process. In the morning or in the night to stay. What happened today? Where was I? What was I doing? The things that came out of my life. Where did they have their source? What are my motives? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Are they self-oriented? Am I, am I, am I, is what's coming out of me the things that I want in service to my king? That kind of reflection is the renewal process, the making new. That process, it proves what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He goes on to say, like we've already looked at this mirror to James, that we are the 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 consequence of all that, the antidote for that worldly disposition, that conformed disposition, is not to think of myself more highly than I ought, but to think soberly. Soberly, it's so much connected with with. Um, intoxication in our common way of using it that it misses a little bit of the point it it really means so seriously like with due gravity that's why it's connected to to intoxication because when you're intoxicated you don't take things seriously you're jubilant and jocular and foolish and ridiculous and sobriety is the opposite of all those things it's grounded and stable and real it's the real thing that's what soberly and what that means is that i have to that analysis process has to be based on a real attempt at an accurate analysis of who i am yeah so moving on to verse four um Actually, that last half of that, verse 3. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And we're switching gears a little bit here. We're moving on from this self-reflection, like who am I? What am I? What am I about? And that leads us right into these thoughts about what God is making in my life, what he's given me, what I'm supposed to be in him, how, how he's created, what purpose he's created me for. And in every one of the three gifts, the three spiritual gift lists, there's some kind of connection to uh, universalize these gifts. Uh, There's some form of every man is given or he gives to every man. And this is the version for Romans 12. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members, uh, that word members, uh, it means body parts. It's like a, a... your member is like your arm is a member of your body and all members have not the same office or purpose or function. So we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. There's so many things that, that we could talk about, about how that unity and body life connection is, is essential, but I'm going to leave that for the moment. We might, touch it again later, but 
there's so many things about these gifts that I want to talk about that I, I'm going to leave off of that. There's several places where this kind of terminology gets used where we're, we're all a part of one another. We all have a, we're incomplete without the functioning of the other parts of our body. Every one of us has a purpose to serve. Every one of us has something that we're supposed to be doing. Every one of us needs all the other pieces in order to be a composite whole. He says, um, having then gifts differing, we're supposed to have different gifts, and how much, how many problems do we have just from not recognizing that one simple fact. I mean, I, you can do, you, you, you can study church history, a whole movements of churches that are trying to all be one thing. Like, and, and it, 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 it just, if you don't have this composite view, you can, you can, you can distort the body with really good things, right? You, you can focus on one part of the body. You can focus on eyesight or you can focus on speaking or you focus on hearing to the detriment of all the other parts of the body. You can be completely built up. Like uh, I saw one time these like professional arm wrestlers and it's a guy that like his right arm is three times bigger than his left arm, a scrawny little guy with a giant right arm. And it looks like a mutant. It looks just absurd and preposterous. And I think how many of our churches are like that? Well, we got one thing that, that everybody wants to do and everybody wants to be. And we're walking around like a pipsqueak that can barely stand with this giant right arm. And it's of no value. Like, how do you, I saw that guy. And I was like, how does he even live his life? Like, what is it like to be that guy to be like all arm? I don't, it's weird. And it's weird when the church does it too. When it's, when all the emphasis and all the focus is on one thing. We're supposed to be composite. We're supposed to be broad and whole and have all these different things happening. And that's where these gifts come in, is that the analysis of, of who you are and who I am is how, we, is how we live as a composite. It's how we engage the whole world as a body. Okay, so like, let's take something really good. Let's take evangelism. Or let's take, let's, let's take a different one. Let's take... Uh, Teaching, proper teaching of the scriptures. How important is that? Well, it's super important. Right doctrine. We need right doctrine. Yes, we do. But what happens when we perfect our doctrine and we, haven't, we don't know how to tell anybody about it? What happens if we're super good at telling people the gospel, but we're horrible at loving and serving people? Like all of these things are necessary. And so we grab truths out of the Bible and we say, we lift it up and we say, this is really important. And maybe it is, but there's other things that are important too. One of the reasons that I, I am very um, appreciative and defensive of the way that we structure our meetings around the Eucharist, around taking communion together, is that I think for most of my Christian life, this moment right here, somebody standing in front of the church and speaking about the Bible was the culmination, was the reason why the church came together. 
And that does something to us. Like this moment, this space, and this place becomes the most important thing that we do. It's why we come together. And that's, that creates a certain way of thinking about what's important to the church, what are, what are the most important gifts, how, if I want to do things that are meaningful to God in the body, how, what should I be pursuing? All of those things factor into how we emphasize the reason for why the church comes together. When you de-emphasize this time and you say, it's great, we love to teach in the Bible, we love to, to share with one another the truths of the scriptures, but the really important thing is for us to, as a community, sit at Jesus' table and be honest and open with who we really are and receive grace from him collectively. It's a whole different emphasis. Well, how, what, you can see there what, what that emphasis creates in a community, what we would prioritize and what would become the most important things to us. I want the most important things to us as a community to be the ability to cultivate our relationships so we can be really open and honest and really minister to each other's needs and really bear one another's burdens and really weep with one another when we weep and rejoice with one another when we rejoice. That's what I want our community life to be built around, not who the best speaker is or who the best communicator is. Okay. So this is how these these are parts of how um, we understand the body, and he goes on to list seven things, and that's kind of interesting numerically. They are prophecy, ministry, or that's serving, um, teaching, exhorting, giving, ruling. Is what uh, what the King James says uh, and mercy. Now I, I'm going to share some of my own ideas about this list of things as motivational gifts. And uh, what I've said up to this point, I think are are universal truths. I want to share with you now in this list of seven things how I think that these things work. This is. Uh, some subjective things that are going to follow. So we can discuss it. We can, we can keep it open. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to your input, but I want to share with you how I've applied these, this list of things in thinking about people's motivations in ways that are helpful in the church and in the world. So <clears throat> if I say some speculative things, bear with me and let me validate my, my premise. I think that these motivations are, let me just introduce a few concepts. I think that this is like a composite snapshot of Christ. Like you, you can go through and what I'd like to do over the next several weeks is, is look at each one of these gifts individually and, and trace them through the Bible, through certain characters and see how these gifts work and function. But I think that, that each of them, is an aspect of Jesus's motivation in the world. I think he is the whole, like, just like, so if, if I have one gift and you have one gift and we all have our own gifts and together we make up the body of Christ, I think the point to that is that these are all things that were in Christ. Like as the, as the logos, he contained all of these gifts. 
So he had these gifts of prophecy, teaching, ministering, exhorting, ruling, giving, and mercy. That's a composite of who he was. And each of us have a piece of that primarily. Okay. The other thing is that I think that these gifts, they function as like a prism, a personal prism, like a personality. Like people fall into one of these seven categories. Like it's, it, it's, it's like a, um, a paradigm. It's the way that you see the world. So let me explain what I mean by that. So someone who is in, who has the gift of, of prophecy here, the motivational gift of prophecy, it's not that they're really good at predicting the stock market or telling the future. It's that their central motivation, the thing that moves them and makes them want to be and do are truth propositions. That's the essential thing that they are motivated by. The minister, the server, his ascent, the, the motive for his life, the way he sees the world is through needs and meeting needs. The giver sees through the lens, like his life is built around resource. Like he's good at, at procuring and distributing resource. Um, the exhorter is like he's, a, he's the kind or she's the kind of person that sees what the potential of people, what you could be, and wants to help people achieve that. Teachers have this primary motivation, the, the thing that really interests them, the thing that really moves them is knowledge and understanding. So we have one of these primary motivations, each of us, and, and we're driven by that notion that, that becomes the thing that, that motivates our world. Mercy people are just all about, uh, this word mercy is actually, it, 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 it's to pity. And the notion, the, the premise is like empathy, the, the ability to understand someone else. Now, now imagine wh- why this matters. If that's the case, that we have a primary motivation out of this list of things in the church, and one person's primary motivation is what's true. I don't care how you feel about it. I don't care what you think about it. It's either true or it's not true. It's black or it's white. We're either here or we're there. That's one kind of person. And the other person on the other end of the spectrum is all about empathy. Like maybe truth isn't the most important thing. How do we feel about it? We can't receive truth until we feel cared about, until we feel understood. We have to be able to to empathize with people in order to even be able to talk about truth. That comes first. Well, and the minister's thinking, no, we really have to deal with people's needs. That's the only thing that matters. We, we have to be out there. We have to be, you know, feeding people and caring for people's bodies and helping where we can help and doing everything that we can. That's, we have to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Like if we're not doing that, we're not doing anything. And the teacher's saying, well, if we don't understand why we do these things, then none of that matters. And you can see very quickly how this can all come at cross purposes. Another potential problem with our gifts is that if we don't know to look for them, if we don't know how to analyze them and see them in one another, if we don't understand gifts different than my own, when you say something, I assume that you mean what I would mean if I said that. 
But that is not at all the case. Sometimes when you say something, you don't at all mean what I would have meant if I had said that. And this creates all kinds of confusion, miscommunication, mistrust, interpersonal conflict. It's, a lot of it comes out of these kinds of misunderstandings. And so, so a way to harmony for us as a body is to be able to understand, oh, well, when so-and-so says that, this is what they mean. This is where they're coming from. This is the things that are motivating them to speak like that or to act like that or to do those things. It's not that they don't care about truth. It's not that they don't care about what the Bible says. It's that they care about people. That's why. And so if we can combine all these things, then we become whole. If we can add all of those perspectives, we get one composite perspective. That's the body of Christ. That's the whole. But if I'm exerting my piece over yours, or you're doing your piece over mine, or you can't hear me because you think this way, or I can't hear you, like all of that becomes chatter and clatter and just noise instead of harmony. Instead of every note playing in harmony, we just like banging gongs. And we're speaking past each other and over each other and we're missing the point. Um, okay, let me, let me, I don't think any of that's super speculative. I mean, maybe, maybe somebody could argue with some of the finer points of that, but, but let me introduce some of the, the, the more speculative pieces. This is a list of, of seven things and I'm going to, <clears throat> we're not going to do it today because I want the time to develop it. Um, but the next time I speak, I want to talk about this gift of prophecy. What does it mean? How does it function? Who, who, who is in that category and what are they doing? Why does it matter? What purposes is serving the church? What are, its, what are its strengths and weaknesses? We'll look at that at each one of these gifts uh, in due time. But I think that there's um, some clues and some indicators uh, for how to add on to this, this motivational gift to see things that could be, like if we understand that motivation, where can we find some clues in the Bible for how to use that properly? What I mean by that is that there's some other mentions of sevens, and I'll, I'll lay out two in specific. There's seven letters to the seven churches, and there's seven things that God hates. And it's very interesting to line all these things up, to line up these seven gifts in, in, in Romans with the seven letters, with the seven things that God hates, and see pros and cons. And it's amazing what that, what that does. Now, I'm not claiming this is gospel truth or anything. You don't have to take that to the bank. But it's a fascinating analysis to look at these lists and see how there's a harmony between um, what this gift of prophecy does in relation to the gift. Of, let's just talk about one so you can see what I'm talking about because it sounds silly. So a prophet is this truth-oriented person, right? He's, he's the one that... Um, the 
like when we think of the prophets in the Old Testament, the 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 requisite to be in that category is to be able to step past relations and normalcy in your culture. Like the prophets are the people that go against the tide. They go, they swim upstream. All of Israel is falling apart. They're all going to the pagan altars. They're all defying God. They're all oppressing the widows and the orphans. And the prophet is the fish swimming upstream saying, no, we have to get back to God. God told us this, and he, that's his job and his function in, in Israel is to warn them and to bring them back to try to grab that whole mass of people and pull them back up to, upstream to where they came from, back to their roots and their origin and their truth in Jehovah. You have to be kind of relationally insensitive to do that ministry. Like what it takes is is not caring what people think about you so that you can communicate those truths. But you can see how that doesn't create a whole life. Like that doesn't stand on its own very well. It's a very isolating and alienated way of living. If you can mesh that with the other parts of the body, it's very, it's very holistic. So these, these people with this motivation they're very strong-willed, they have strong independent streak, and they're very hard to change their mind. They're, they're stuck in what they think. Let's, let's look over at Revelations um, in the church, the letter of the Church of Ephesus, and see what it says here. We'll do this again, I just want to make the point. Uh, listen to the description in Revelations chapter 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I'll come to thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick. And what I found in people that walk in that gifting is that they get so bent on their truth, on the thing that they think is important, the thing that they think is curative, like, we just all need to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, or we all need to be non-resistant, like, that's where we see a lot of these crusading prophet types in the evangelical world. I talk to them all the time. And they get so fixated like a pit bull on that one truth that they fall out of love with Christ. Like the whole world just becomes about that truth that they put at the center of their universe and Christ falls out of his place. And that letter to Ephesus is saying, hey, I know you've worked hard. I know you've been diligent to evaluate and to find the truth, but don't forget what this is about. Don't forget who's at the center of this. Don't forget why you care about these truths. And that's a that's a corrective for people with that gift. Same thing if you look over in, in Proverbs uh, chapter 6 is where that list of six things the seventh Lord hates. The first one that's mentioned is a proud look. And you can imagine uh, if your motive is to stand for truth no matter what anybody else around you says, does, thinks, or looks like, you develop this rugged independence that I'm right and nobody else is. 
And there's so much room for pride in that gift and that motivation and that, and that way of looking at the world that you have to consider. You have to always have this skepticism about your own pride. So all these things go together. And that kind of merging happens with all seven of these gifts. And we'll look at that uh, in more detail.